0: And Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season One, Episode Six of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the Guild Hall the designer of a drive through RPG Electrum best selling science fiction role playing game. As we have mentioned before on this show, Fantasy is established as the hegemon in tabletop roleplaying, for a number of reasons, including the fact that fantasy has far more established tropes than science fiction. On this show, we hope to bring you all tabletop RPGs of all genres, all systems, and all tenures, which is why this episode we are leaving Earth's Orbit to discuss a relatively recent science fiction RPG which simplifies D20 mechanics, defines recognizable alien archetypes such as greys, reptilians, and hive-minded insectoids, and wants you to be the latest recruit in the Space Marine Corps. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. Today on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a veteran space marine of the Dominion, who has faced the dread and other horrors beyond the reaches of our sun, and returned to design the drive through RPG Electrum best-selling game, Aliens and Asteroids, Brian Fitz, Fitzpatrick. Fitz, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Steven. I appreciate it.
0: And uh, where in occupied space are you calling in from?
1: Ah, well, I'm in Colorado, and uh, we got a little bit of snow today, but it's a lovely spring day, so not too bad.
0: Excellent. And are you from Colorado originally?
1: Yep, except for a a brief time in the desert. I've spent most of my life here, so yeah.
0: Okay, and so when in that life did you start gaming?
1: (laughs) many 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 moons ago i want to say it was 82 or 83 and playing old dnd which i played for many moons and then kind of fell out of favor and then got back into gaming again in college and have played a myriad of systems over the years all the usual stuff including you know toon and star wars the old version and you know good stuff so we're having fun that's the goal.
0: Any favorites you tend to come back to? Uh, anything you spend more time with than anything else?
1: Well, as much as I, I hate to admit it, D&D. I uh, keep falling back to D&D every now and then and have played variants of it over the years. It, it's an oldie but a goodie. I'm still playing in a fourth edition campaign with a group of people. We're, we're still doing that about once a month. And yeah, I've played 5e. I like 5e. But yeah, multiple versions of D&D over the years that I keep falling back to. Excellent. Any uh,
0: favorite? Characters or campaigns that you can recall?
1: Oh, we did a 3 million and one experience campaign in college and as I recall, it ended in a huge battle where we all died defending a castle and my favorite scene that I can recall was a I want to say it was a dwarf who was dressed in plate armor who was basically dressed, sort of looked like R2-D2. It was just a maddening decision. We were shooting arrows off the parapets and lots of spells and we all died glorious deaths so it was was a lot of fun.
0: Was that a planned total party kill or Or did it just turn out that way and you guys were okay with it?
1: You know, I honestly don't remember. My rose-colored glasses are, are tinted such that I think they fade to black at a certain point.
0: Ah, okay. And what were you in that campaign?
1: I believe I was a wizard. I want to say I was a wizard. That might have been the same campaign that I launched a fireball into a 10 by 10 room. So yeah, I I can't recall, but it was a long time ago and eh, it was fun. I still uh, am playing with a couple of the people that I think played in that campaign. So that'll tell you that gaming with friends continues well after their prime, I think.
0: Absolutely. I'm still gaming with a guy I met in kindergarten, so
1: nice. Yeah.
0: So you played that in college. You're playing D&D. You've been playing D&D for quite a while. So you kept the hobby up after college, I take it.
1: Yep. We did a lot of Palladium, the role-playing game. We played a lot of Palladium Fantasy and Ninjas and Super Spies and some Vampire, the Masquerade. And then a friend and I started designing our own system, which was kind of old school inspired. So that was kind of when I started doing the writing thing.
0: Okay. And what inspired you to design the system?
1: I think we decided that we really wanted a universe Universal role-playing game. We, we wanted a system sort of like Palladium or GURPS or anything but Hero. I'm not a Hero fan, I'm really sorry. But a universal system that we could play any genre, and eventually, the goal was to be able to play in a game where you had science fiction characters next to fantasy characters, next to superheroes, and whatever else to save the universe. All within the same rule set, playing together, just to have fun and make crazy stories. And that's one of the reasons why Mobius Adventures was born. We have this crazy idea of infinite stories, and that's why we use the Mobius Strip as, as our uh, logo. Excellent.
0: Okay. And so that's where not only the... You have, a, you have a game called Mobius Adventures, but then that's also the name of your, your publishing house as well.
1: Yeah, our original game was the Mobius Adventures role-playing game, and I believe we sold one copy. That was back before drive RPG in the Dark Ages, before PDF actually really took off. And we sold a copy to a guy in England. I don't actually know whatever happened to it, but it was in a three-ring binder, and I printed it at my house. So that was a quite a while ago. But yeah, so we started designing back in the mid-90s. And we had several versions of that first game. It was very crunchy. It was very reminiscent of old school D&D and lots of Rollmaster kind of inspired bits and d and and little Palladium. Well, we kind of mixed and matched, but uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Excellent. So after the Universal game, did you continue designing games or was it a while before your next game?
1: So my writing partner at the time, Sean Mendel, passed away in an auto accident in 2000. And I really fell out of games for a while. I ended up getting married and having kids and doing all that good stuff, and really didn't get back to writing again until I want to say 2006. Uh, I dusted off the old Mobius Adventures book, and we published the Core Rules book, and I gave away about a thousand copies of that book on drive through over a Thanksgiving giveaway, learned my lesson, and can I just say that Crunchy Games, in the early 2000s when rules were slimming down and the whole rules light movement was starting to come up, that was not probably my best moment to release a Crunchy Game, but I'm proud of that game. It was a, a good reminder of the work that I had done with Sean before, and I'm still proud of it, even though we don't play that game anymore, I still kind of pick and choose a few bits and pieces of that in our new game, or our new system in Verse 20. But between the publishing of that book and the start of the kind of system-neutral moments of Mobius Adventures, Uh, I ran a little website known as Game Night Reviews and did a lot of reviews of other people's stuff, and that kind of reignited the passion of doing some writing on my own, which was part of why I started getting back into publishing again. So, Okay,
0: so you had the background having helped create this very crunchy, universal system. What was the goal of the next game and the new system?
1: So... Originally, when I got back to writing again, it was all system neutral stuff. And then I teamed up with Vince Florio on Mazes and Perils, and we released a new version of that game, uh, which is very old school influenced Arneson level D&D. And we had a good success with that book. We released a few supplements for that and then i kind of turned away from fantasy for a while and wanted to do a space marines version of a game and i started originally with an old school system kind of like mazes and perils or the old harness and dnd and quickly found that it was too crunchy for what i wanted to do i wanted combat to be quick and light And for it not to be so bogged down in rules that you needed a, you know, a big book to figure out what the heck you were doing. So that was about the time that I was working with Alan Barr of Gallant Knight Games. He's our publishing partner and and has been since 2017, 2018. And he and I... He helped me kind of refine a newer system where we created this inverse 20 thing. And basically, all inverse 20 games are going to work pretty much the same. The idea is you have a set of attributes, sort of like D&D, and then to complete an action and see whether you were successful or not, you roll a die 20. And if you roll under your attribute value or right on, you succeed. If you roll over, you fail. If you roll a natural 1, it's a critical success. And if you roll a natural 20, it's a critical fail. Now, you might notice that this is the complete opposite of D&D, where if you roll a nat 20, that's a good thing. And if you roll a nat 1, that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. I roll more 1s playing D&D than any human alive. Uh, (laughs) And I wanted a game that, that kind of... Bucked the system. Now, here's the funnier part. I roll more 20s playing inverse 20 than I ever did playing D&D. So it hasn't exactly worked out in my favor. But the idea is that it's a very easy system to learn. You basically look at your sheet and go, oh, I'm shooting a gun. That's accuracy. Or I am wielding a weapon. That's athletics do I make my roll, yes or no, and move on. We also borrowed the idea of advantage and disadvantage from 5e. So if you are rolling at an advantage, let's say you have a, a trait that gives you an advantage. For example, in Aliens and Asteroids, if you're shooting a gun, having the guns trait is useful. That gives you an advantage when you're firing a gun, which is an accuracy check. So other things are at a disadvantage, like if you're panicked, your rolls are at a disadvantage. If you're doing something really, really hard, like you know, trying to climb a sheer cliff with nothing but your bare fingernails, that would be at a disadvantage. So we kind of wrapped in a few things, but it's a really simple die mechanic. And then your set of attributes and a set of traits, and you're off to the races. So it's very easy. I was really impressed with how quickly we came up with that with Alan. And then we started playtesting back in, August of 2017 for Aliens and Asteroids, and it was the first major playtest that I've run in person. Ran it at my favorite local game store, Petries, here in Colorado Springs, and we had a great time. It was a, a slow burn. We only had you know one or two people come and help us test initially, and then that kind of developed into a pretty steady group of like I don't know four to eight people depending on the day, and we played a lot of crazy adventures. But uh, aliens and asteroids. Since I've already slipped into that, <laughs> is basically our science fiction game. The idea is you're playing a bunch of space marines. Think aliens or Starship Troopers or the computer game XCOM. The idea is you're you're a bunch of Earthlings fighting against whatever it happens to be, even you know aliens, heaven forbid. And we have kind of expanded our universe a little bit. We have five different solar systems that we've expanded into, and we kind of have the idea of stargates. We call them Bance gates, which are basically sort of like you bounce from system to system. And the universe is expanding for Earthlings, and as we've expanded into the universe, some things have pushed back. One of them being the Dread, which is this weird multiversal enemy who is basically draining the universe of life one planet at a time. So it's my Geiger alien inspired critter. And we have a bunch of alien species that Earth has run into over the years. And yeah, the, the universe is very open ended. We have a little bit of a story that's going with the Dread coming to invade Earth's space eventually. And really, it's up to the players and the referees as to where they want to take it.
0: All right. As far as the setting and the game, does have an established setting. I guess someone wouldn't have to use all of it, but it's there. And I wanted to discuss that a little more with you. So we started from Earth as the epicenter and took over some nearby solar systems. Yep, We've run into the Dread and you mentioned some other aliens as well. What were some of the other aliens you decided to include?
1: So we've got uh, a number of aliens. The The first one is the Gray Men, because you can't have a science fiction Uh, story that doesn't involve gray men. And in our universe, the gray men are a bit of a sort of a Frankenstein kind of species. They are a dying race. Their worlds have been destroyed, and they're kind of relying on cloning and stealing humans to reuse their genetic tissue so it is very Frankensteinish on the gray men's side then we have the scali which are our lizard-based race if you like star trek then they're sort of like the gorn but they're very almost japanese samurai kind of noble races and they decided that they were going to land on venus they were a race that was destroyed by the dread and they blew up their planet rather than watch it die a slow death and a few of them have escaped and they landed on venus because it sort of felt like home which is a very strange place (laughs) but we didn't know they were there for about 50 years, and then suddenly we decided to, you know, probe Venus one more time, and they destroyed the probe. We went to do first contact, and we got into a protracted war with them, and that lasted for two years until suddenly they decided to send a message that said, Enough, and the war stopped. This seems to coincide with the beginning of the dread invasion of Earth space. So there's a definite tie there, uh, which we kind of cover in one of the expansions that we did. Beyond the grays and the Scali. We have the Gallus, which are these kind of airbag, gasbag kind of critters, sort of like you would experience or expect to see like in Jupiter's atmosphere floating around. They are very old species, very smart. They have a huge space fleet and they're getting ready to leave the galaxy. Why? Because the thread have kind of decimated their corner of the universe and they don't want to deal with it anymore. So when we were expanding out into the universe, we eventually stumbled across them, and they gave us a little tech and in return, we kind of bothered them with a lot of questions, but they're not telling us why they're leaving. Well, of course they're leaving because of the dread, because the dread are evil, but they're on their way out of the galaxy, and then the last species that we have are the Neogen, and the Neogen are sort of like Cylons, in that they are a group of sentient androids that have gained sentience. They've gone beyond, you know, their basic programming and have personalities and want to survive. Of course, they're being hunted down because they're bugs and the system and you know we can't have bugs in the system it's just no we must debug our android fleet but they were among the first to encounter the gallus and they are simply trying to survive so we have a little bit of everything in aliens and asteroids it's kind of my love letter to all of the science fiction that i have devoured over the years and beyond that we have the stellar graveyard and the Stellar Graveyard is this area of space that the Dread have decimated, and that's where the Scali came from, the Gallus were there. There are still a number of undiscovered species that are still there, which we can expand you know, into the future. But we are kind of visiting, there's a group of like nomadic Earthlings that are roaming around and trying to steal technology from these Dread-infested planets. Because, you know, that's kind of what we do. We go and find things as the star trek next generation episode was very inspirational on that one but so like i said we kind of have a little bit of everything and if you don't want to go with any of that more power to you because the system is so easy you could pretty much adapt it to just about anything so i like our world because it's very open-ended we can pretty much insert whatever you'd like if you want to run a a horror kind of science fiction campaign that stars the dread you can very easily do that oh and we haven't even talked about the dread So the Dread are ruled by the monarch, the queen herself, which is this living planet. And she is, uh, I look at it as the cosmic, kind of a cosmic buffet line. Let's go with a cosmic buffet line. She is basically tasting her way through the multiverse. And when I say that, her purpose is she gathers enough living energy that she can pop from one universe to the next. And while she's there, she devours planets until she's had her fill, and then she goes on to the next part of the multiverse. And she's done this through many universes, because you know you can't have a science fiction universe without being a multiverse. And this goes all the way back to our Mobius strip adventure kind of concept where we have the possibility of existing in multiple universes all kind of bumping up against one another. So the queen, the monarch, has had her fill of many universes over the years, and she's just dining on ours now.
0: Okay, and so they answer to this sort of hive mind living planet. What sort of forms do the dread that you may encounter take? Because it's not just the planet, obviously. No, no. <laughs>
1: Right. She chucks what we call queens, and queens uh, land and, and start generating hives or nests. And she has some soldiers, and she has... There's like five different groups. One of them basically burrows to the center of the planet and acts as the radio tower for the dread, generating the hive mind. There is a harvester that basically drains living creatures and sticks their energy into these little bulbs of energy that they eventually get to the queen and she devours. Uh, but this creates dread hollows, so it's sort of a zombie version of life, and hollows get to be this really wide ranging thing where the queen can actually modify these things to give them additional capabilities so maybe, like in one case we had these weird fish on a planet that grew really big. Well, she made them grow super big to the point where they could swallow a human whole. So, you can have all sorts of fun by tweaking these creatures and making hollows even more horrific. But yeah, it's not good. When when your planet has a hive on it, it's kind of the alien situation where you want to nuke the planet just to make sure. Ah,
0: okay. And so as far as the aesthetic of the dread, are they, they're insectoid sort of?
1: Yeah, sort of. We definitely went Geiger-ish. They are weird critters with multiple legs. There's a picture in the book that uh, was done by our awesome artist, Jason, and they are pretty scary Beasts, honestly. Very carapacey
0: uh, uh, and. Yeah, macular. just
1: lots of, you know, lots of hard edges and weird angles, and they're sort of part plants, and they're weird, but. They're, they're fun,
0: fun so long as they're not burrowing into your planet.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So long as you don't have them burrowing in your planet. So the the harvester is kind of the key. When you start getting the harvester in there and you know draining the planet of life, it gets really creepy. Our Kickstarter didn't actually get to do any of the goals, but we uh, managed to talk to one of our authors that was going to do one of the uh the goals, and she wrote the Tolkien Prison Colony, and that one is so they're like on the edge of the stellar graveyard. And their particular flavor is they were all prisoners, so it's sort of our Australia, where this was a prison colony that eventually outgrew being a prison colony and became a legitimate business, and they have all sorts of new technology and stuff. But it's kind of fun because there's political intrigue and other stuff. So that's sort of what I was saying. If you want to play any kind of science fiction plot, you could probably come up with it. So But the dread are sort of at the the core of all the ills of this universe. And that's one of the reasons why the Gaulus, I think, have the right idea. It's time to go.
0: (laughs) And of course, if you want to invent additional threats, you could, and you can have I mean the Greys don't appear to be the gray men, sorry, don't appear to be on our side, right?
1: No, the Greys are definitely not on our side. They're still kidnapping humans and and torturing them and cutting them up into small pieces so that they can use us for prolonging their own lives. And the adventure in the back of the first book deals with a kidnapping, so you can face one of them for a while, or a few of them that are kidnapping this poor guy on the moon and we have an expansion for them that kind of goes into their backstory a little bit uh, we have another expansion for the Skali that goes into their backstory a little bit we have expansions planned for the gallus and the dread so we slowly expanded i think we have about 12 or 13 supplements now for aliens and asteroids between all the extras and i think we're There may be a second edition coming in the next couple of years. So there's a lot. We have a lot going on, but it's fun. But it's it's slow because, you know... Being a one-man shop, pretty much, I- I'm a slow guy, so uh, I-, I don't create a whole lot very fast.
0: You've collected a number of people to, to assist you as well. You would mentioned Alan Barr and uh, uh, some artists and such.
1: Yeah, Alan and Peter Saga and Jason Adams and a few other folks have helped out a lot. We've got uh, a Patreon that's helped out some, so we've got some dedicated fans who have kind of given some ideas and helped playtest a few things. So yeah, it- it's not really a one-man shop thankfully alan is out there i am not the best marketer in the world but alan has helped a lot with marketing and distribution and all the rest of that so i am thankful for the people who know what they're doing
0: and the game is published through mobius adventures which is your company but it's in partnership with gallant knight which is alan's company that's correct and alan might be best known for his tiny d6 system
1: oh yeah He's got a whole corner of the universe to himself. He's got a lot of games. <laughs>
0: <laughs> But back to Aliens and Asteroids. So we have this very well-developed science fiction setting with a lot of, you know, science fiction doesn't have the same sort of standardized tropes that fantasy does. I've brought that up a few times on this show. But you've tried to sort of define those with the greys and the sort of, you know, the carapace dread. And of course, lizard men and things like that. You've gone for what feels classic. And I think that there's some great ideas there. With the greys, with harvesting humans And. and using us to prolong their lives... Is that something that you've seen in other literature or media at all? No,
1: no. So one of the things, I grew up watching the X-Files, of course, and Mm -hmm. the Greys were a big part of that. And they always had this weird, creepy backstory where you you don't really know what they're there for, but that's not for good. And they've been kidnapping people for, for years and years and years. But I wanted to kind of come up with a compelling reason why. So I brought in the idea of the Frankenstein kind of approach where they're a dying race and pretty much in order to survive they're cloning themselves and each clone gets them a little further from the original material and then the originals from their home planet are they're aging out so pretty much they're replacing any biomass with human biomass which you know works for a while bad for us good for them but they have this tragic backstory where they have a lot of technology that they've sort slowly lost contact with like they have all of this amazing knowledge of genetics and prolonging lives and to them it's almost like the asimov it's magic it's technology that's progress to the point where they don't actually understand why it still works the way it does but i i felt like they needed a more compelling reason than just kidnapping people to do you know experiments on on spacecraft so i really like the uh, Frankenstein angle
0: i like that too so we have this well-developed you know setting with with various races that we can choose from it, to encounter in various ways and the characters are going out as space marines a la several different medias that you mentioned before with you know the alien films and and, you know Starship Troopers things like that. What made you want to make a, a space marine game specifically?
1: So, uh I had been playing fantasy for so long. Honestly, I think some of it was due to the expanse. Watching that first season of The Expanse and playing far too much XCOM 2 kind of brought me to the point where I really liked the idea of space marines. And one of the things that we have in our system which I don't know if you've ever played Call of Cthulhu, but their insanity mechanic mm-hmm. always kind of called to me. Long story short, I had a, a bout with a Tommy gun mowing down my entire party in the college, but thankfully it was in a game and I don't believe I survived that particular ex- encounter. But the idea is that uh, when you're encountering some of these things and you can't help but feel affected, like maybe you want to panic and run. And that was one of the things that the XCOM series of games did a great job with. So I wanted to, bring that in. And the idea is that there's a certain point where it just gets hard to marshal on. So if you want to play that horror angle, I felt like it brought in enough of that oh my god there's an alien breathing down my neck and I'm going to panic kind of mode which I hadn't seen in, in enough other kind of space marine sort of games I played some Traveler Traveler always seemed a little and nothing against Traveler because it's an amazing game but a little antiseptic like it's a far future game and it kind of pulled some of the the horror out of the the scenario where it was more just dealing with the aspects of being a spacefaring race and, you know, mercantilism and dealing with training and all the rest of that. So I wanted to pull it back to the point where it was more of the game over, game over kind of situation in Aliens. And I, th- I think we, we kind of brought that in without it being too overbearing and too unbalancing to the, to the rest of the system. It, it just falls into play. So pretty much all of the media that I've consumed over the years but I think that The Expanse and XCOM 2 really drove me over the edge so I'm happy with it we have had a great time playtesting the game and I am excited to see what other gamers do with it if you know what I mean so I think there's plenty of room to play
0: absolutely so is there anything more about the setting that you think we should cover before we move on
1: the one thing is that it is sort of cyberpunk in that the Dominion is corporate led So there is no government for the human race at this point. The Dominion is led by essentially a corporate board of directors. So you kind of do get that the Wayland yutani kind of corporate profits and greed over human cost kind of angle. And I haven't played that up a whole lot, but I I think you could definitely pull that in. So I I think there's enough little bits and pieces of all of the favorite tropes in science fiction that I think you could pick and choose what you want to play with and come up with something. Sure. A uh,
0: referee or game master can really lean in any, you know, any of some very established directions to yep. develop the sort of gameplay that the players would be looking for or the story that the referee wants to explore. So, Exactly. I think that you did that very well. Okay, so uh, you were looking for a, a simpler mechanic and you decide to go with a a roll under d20 system you mentioned that so in this system because it's roll under a one is a a critical success a 20 is a critical failure and if i'm not mistaken rules is written if you meet your number that's also a critical as well right
1: that's correct and that helps you out in Mostly in combat where you have the idea of armor and a crit success means that you get to punch through to the gooey bits inside. So you find either a chink in the armor or you just have that critical shot that goes through a previously damaged portion of the armor or whatever. Uh, so getting criticals can be very, very uh, effective way to kill your enemies on the battlefield sure
0: and so it's a list of attributes there's really no skill list you're rolling to either again meet or roll under the attribute and you actually whereas most games that are trying to simplify the d20 system uh, or not most but some of them go with fewer than six you actually added a couple so you have a slightly longer list right
1: yeah we have How many do we have, like seven, I think? Yes, seven. And the idea was that it gave us enough room that we didn't have to rely on skills. So if you don't have a trait in something, you can rely on an attribute that may apply to it. So like I said before, like shooting a gun is accuracy or maybe doing some kind of a science role would be education. Or if you're trying to inspire the troops, it would be like a presence check or willpower or whatever. So we have enough variance in the attributes that we have and then each level so you start out with like I think two traits one from your background and one from your career path which is like your class but we're a classless system so the idea is you get a couple of traits to start from one is from your background or your think of it like your childhood or your previous career and then one is with your career path as a space marine so you're a commander a medic a scientist a marine or a technician and they have like a specialized list of of traits so like your technician has bits and bytes so they can you know hack at a computer or a robot Uh, your scientist may have biology or chemistry or necropsy you know whatever it happens to be and then as you level up each level you gain a trait Uh, and a trait can affect like some of them can affect your toughness or one of your attributes and you can have an attribute bump a trait could be a cybernetic enhancement So you could beef up your body or your brain to do various things. Maybe you want some kind of an eye enhancement that gives you the ability to see far-off stuff so you're more accurate with your gun. You could do biological enhancements. So uh, I was always fascinated by the Batman Beyond, the, the genetic folks who were adding in animal DNA and becoming like animal-human hybrids. So you could do that if you want. But each level you get a trait, and the trait can be a, a traditional skill like guns or armor or astrophysics or whatever. And then as you go up, you're still limited to like your hit points don't go up like they do in other games. So you have to rely on either raising your toughness attribute, which is directly related to your hit points, or adding additional armor. And as we pointed out earlier, if you have a critical success, they can... And shoot through your armor so we're always going to be squishy on the inside It's just a a matter of fact. Uh, Humans going into space and being warriors and fighting in all of these strange situations where there's no air or the air is toxic and you're wearing a suit and it's uncomfortable. Really, that takes a toll on the human being. So I I really wanted to maintain the fact that as a human being, you are a finite being. You could die at any point. And I I think that's my old school gaming coming through that, you know, I, I remember having a four-point wizard at first level in D&D and suffering through a couple of painful levels going, oh my god, I'm going to die. That could happen at any point here. So (laughs) it's not going to change. So I'm either really cruel or I wanted to drive home the fact that humanity is squishy and we're going to die. It's just the way it's going to work. So I think that's the only mean streak that I have in the game,
0: though. Well, and you mentioned, of course, that we get to add armor as players and that, you know, is going to protect us. And I do want to talk a little bit about the armor mechanic, but these traits, and I'm sorry if you mentioned this, can you take the same trait more than once for added advantage or?
1: Some of them you can. Some like guns. Guns has a, a second one, like a follow on trait that's gun specialization. And that gives you like the ability to reload faster and do a little bit more damage. You can specialize in either the use of different kinds of armor or the construction of armor. Some traits have a prerequisite, like in order to do cybernetics, for example, you would have to have bits and bytes ahead of it. So there is kind of a skill tree kind of approach to it, sort of civilization-ish if you've played Civ. But the idea is that really you you only want to take one of these once. Some of them, like cybernetic enhancement or biological enhancement, you could take many times, at least in in the rules. There's a hard limit to how high you can take a, an attribute, either 16 or 18, depending on you know how generous a referee you are. But yeah, it's, it's usually a one and done kind of thing with traits, unless you specialize in a particular variety of either science or a weapon or armor or whatever.
0: So in that example of a cybernetic enhancement, you, you gave the example of an eye before. So I, I get the, the cybernetic eye enhancement it improves. My accuracy score as a result goes up by one yep. as a pro- to some traits where I get to roll an advantage instead, right? That's correct. Okay. Did you mention before if leveling allows you to raise the attributes just as well, or does it have to be tied into a trait?
1: Nope, it's tied to a trait. We played with various things, so I don't know if you've seen that there's actually no economy in our game. So you you can't buy armor. I look at it as the Walmart principle. If you can buy it on a shelf at Walmart, you don't need to spend any money on it. That works for the future as well. I, I always think back to the Terminator scene where the guy says, only what you see, pal, only what you see in the weapon shop. So the idea there is that instead of money, you get these things called purchase rolls. And purchase rolls are a mechanic where you actually roll against your presence and you can negotiate with your referee to get whatever you want. And when I say whatever you want, that's up to you and the referee. And let me tell you a fun story about (laughs) playtesting. Okay. So we had a character who she felt she was a pirate and a space pirate at that so she ended up using purchase rolls to customize a gun to the point where she had Ripley's bolted together flamethrower grenade launcher rifle. We had another person who had an exosuit and she wanted a power punch like something from a Mario Brothers game. We had crazy crazy things come up with purchase rolls and because I am a firm believer in the improvisational technique of yes and we had a lot of fun that has continued to this day my favorite is the i think i have a player who in every game that i've ever played with uh, asked me for a grenade no a black hole gun never mind it's the black hole gun which i have so far said no to <laughs> But the idea is that the purchase roll enables you to get away with crazy stuff that you wouldn't normally get away with and create some really cool, customized stuff. So maybe you end up with a a suit of armor that's just kick-ass and that it's harder for people to get through. Or you end up with a a cane sword that can launch a Batman-like little rope with a hook so you can swing around. I mean, we've let them get away with it just about murder. But I like it because it allows them to really play and you can really customize a character with some crazy stuff.
0: And that's totally up to the referee's discretion?
1: It is totally up to the referee's discretion. So it's always a bit of a negotiation between the the player and the referee and usually the rest of the, the group is sitting there either with their mouth dropped open or cheering on the madness. So it, we've had a lot of fun.
0: And that's just a simple role of their presence, you said, which is one of the seven attributes?
1: Yeah, presence is one of the attributes and there is a trait called rich which you only get if you take the background because it's just one of those strange things although i have allowed people to take rich in the future like they won the lottery but it gives you an advantage on that purchase roll roll so they get away with even more <laughs> because it's the Batman factor. You can't ever factor out Batman. So
0: Okay, real quick, I don't think we covered this. So we mentioned that we have the seven attributes. Can you just run through the seven real quick and how they're determined?
1: Yeah, you bet. So it is accuracy, athletics, awareness, education, morale, presence, and toughness and in aliens and asteroids we basically you roll a two die three and add eight So you're always ending up with a value between 10 and 14 to start. There's no penalty for having a low one, but as you get higher, like for toughness, you get additional damage to physical attacks when you get like beyond 14. Some cool stuff like that. We simplified it in our new game a little bit, but the idea is pretty much you end up with a narrow band of those seven attributes being between 10 and 14, and then everything you're rolling off of them. The hard max for an at least I, I think is 18. I never allow anybody to go beyond that because there always has to be a chance of failure. Mm-hmm. But critical fails are always entertaining too. My aliens and asteroids group has this thing against shotguns. We we played through a Doom scenario, and I swear at least two, maybe three of the characters had shotguns explode on them. So we decided it was a bad batch. But uh anyway.
0: Alright, so curious about the decision of two D three.
1: So in our new game, Tattered Magics, we went with one die six re-roll one and you end up okay. with the same variance yeah two die three it was what we came up with at the time so this was back in 2017 so we've had some time to kind of fine tune a little bit since then
0: okay and for the somebody playing with a normal dice set a die three would be
1: yeah a die three is a one and a two is a one for, so you roll a die six so a one and a two is a one a three and a four is a two and a five and a six is a three so just to make things confusing but pretty much for the main book the only dice that you need are a some die sixes and a couple of die twenties we don't use much else all damage is pretty much based off a of die six just to keep things simple and we did that just for simplicity's sake I think we have some rules in the works for uh, adding some variants as far as you know different weapon styles and weapon types sort of in a dnd-ish feel where you've got everything from die four to die 20 or die 12 whatever but we haven't implemented that yet
0: okay and so you know character creation we roll the attributes mm-hmm. then you choose a background which gets you a tra- you choose a career path which gets you a trait and then you have the the full list of traits here as well for when you're you're leveling up and such
1: The only thing that we haven't talked about is there's also a point of origin, so basically where you're from in the universe if you're from Earth or from the asteroid belt or from the outer planets wherever you're from, you may get a slight bump to one or two attributes
0: That's right, and so for instance uh, Mars you get a plus one to education I think
1: Yeah, so Mars is plus one education, the field so the asteroid field is like either a plus one to toughness or a plus one to awareness. They each give you just, you know, you have to choose a little bit, but it gives you a, at least a little bit of a bump.
0: Okay. And then we have what you describe as secondary attributes with character levels, speed, uh, HP, things like that. Is there anything there that we need to elaborate on, or are those pretty straightforward?
1: That's pretty straightforward. I mean that the toughness is directly your, your hit points. So just your toughness score is hit points. Just your toughness. Okay. Unless you have like uh, later on, we played with uh, adding creature traits, and one of the creature traits is there's a tough bastard creature trait, which I suppose you could add as a PC and that doubles your hit points. So there, there's all oh, sorts wow. of fun things that you could actually do depending on how flexible you want to be with the system. We played this doom themed adventure and it had the, the idea of these little injectables that you could inject yourself with and you would gain creature traits for a while and it would modify your DNA. But And the more you had the worse off your morale would get. So a little bit of a corruption kind of idea. That hasn't been published so eventually we'll get that out but there's enough play in the system that I think just about anybody could you know take bits and pieces from anywhere and go oh well we'll just add this and maybe you take a, a cybernetic enhancement that gives you the tough bastard trait because now you're all of your bones are adamantium going the Wolverine way of things really we, we leave it open so but it's fun excellent
0: and so as far as you mentioned we're always squishy inside of our armor but the armor Armor, you know, it it may seem like you have very few hit points because it's, you know, it's at best you're starting with 14 and at most you're going to have 18, but the armor is what's really protecting you. Can you describe taking damage a little bit?
1: You bet. So, armor, we break into you have an armor rating, which basically kind of takes a number of points off the top. So let's say you're hit with a an alien is clawing at you and you're wearing standard combat armor, which is AR4, so armor rating 4, and AP20, so armor points 20. Armor points, if you've played D&D 4th edition, it had the idea of temporary hit points. Think of armor points sort of like temporary hit points. But in this case, you can fix your armor and rebuild that over time if you want, or even add more. So if you get scratched by that alien... Let's say it does six points of damage to you and you're wearing this armor, and you've got AR4, so your six becomes a two, and then you take two armor points, so your 20 goes to 18. When you're done with AP, it goes to your hit points, unless there's a critical success and it goes straight through to hit points. And the other thing is, with armor, if you're in a vacuum and you have zero armor points, you are bleeding air. So you need to have at least one AP to have environmental suit integrity or you would lose a hit point for each turn after that. So it's good to keep your uh, armor intact.
0: Yeah, really. That's a very interesting mechanic. Okay, so we have the armor rating, which just straight reduces the damage and then the damage all goes towards your AP. Once your armor is all beat up, torn apart, things like that, unless there's a crit, you have not taken any damage. But as soon as the AP is gone, that's when the aliens start digging into your flesh and such.
1: That is true. It gets to the squishy bits. Yeah, And we do have the idea of there is mechanized armor, although we don't really expand on it a whole lot. You have an exosuit and mechanized armor. So you could expand on things and have like hard points, and you have additional, like, you're sort of like an onion when you're wearing a mechanized armor, and maybe you have standard armor on inside it while you're piloting. So you really can go add as many layers as you want, but eventually it is going to get through to your squishy parts. Right? That's just the way it is.
0: And do most opponents work the same way? alien that you'd be fighting and such are most of them armored?
1: Not all of them are armored. The more intelligent ones like the Gray Aliens and the scally and the Gallus, they're all just like us that they have armored suits and, and or force fields or whatever on the Gallus' side. The Gallus are like this super advanced species that isn't sharing any of their toys with us. So we're kind of angry about that. But they have manipulation over gravity and better tech across the board. And we're just left in the Dark Ages going, oh, we'll just add a little thicker plate and it'll be fine. So, yeah, aliens have uh, creature traits so we have a bunch of aliens in the book like the if you go to the dread, The Dread Mm -hmm. have some armor, but not all of the creatures have armor, like uh, Alien Slime, for example. You can't have a good science fiction game without an Alien Slime. It has no armor, but it has... We don't go into details for some of the critters as much as we do with PCs, so they just have a single attribute value. Like, for an Alien Slime, it's attribute 8. For
0: just everything, any check.
1: Yeah, for everything across the board. And that simplifies everything, and and some of them may have a, a bump to one or two attributes, but it's not... Like as detailed as a PC is. But they don't have armor, but they do have regenerating health, so it regenerates one hit point per turn. For other things, like a space centipede, it has a tough hide, which gives it AR2, so right across the board, but it has no AP. So there's a lot of variants that you can add with the creature traits, which I think is fun.
0: That is fun. It really helps you, too, if you wanted to design your own creatures, which you also have rules for here.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah, and one of the other things we didn't discuss was there's drone creation, too, so if you a tech and you want to create your own drone, you can kind of, I hate to use the idea of the Roomba in space, but you basically can design your own Roomba to have all sorts of cool stuff so you can send it in if you want to pilot it and send it in on its own so that you're nice and safe and it's the one that's getting beaten. That's also a useful trait. Yeah,
0: absolutely. As far as creature creation, you do give a very nice set of traits to choose from and things like that when they're, when you're building a creature. Is there anything you wanted to cover there at all?
1: We have a, a, an interesting cross section of traits and a lot of of the supplements, the, the expansions that we have adds additional traits for various things. So there's even more traits for PCs to take. There's more technology that they could take. There's even a few new uh, career paths that they could take or backgrounds. So I don't think there's a an end to how far you could take the system as far as expanding it. Okay. And you
0: have pretty simple rules here for rolling up new creature stats and things like that.
1: Yep. It's uh, pretty basic, but it gets the job done, which that's pretty much all you need. And the one of the design principles that we tried to do is try to keep it simple because we didn't quite need to go as far as D&D does with some of their more in-depth monster definitions, but we wanted to keep it pretty consistent so that you don't have a lot of overpowered creatures. You can definitely create an overpowered creature, and they're fun because, you know, who doesn't want to not scream in outer space when they're being chased by an alien? But at the same time, we wanted to keep it simple for the referees so that they could quickly, you know, bang together whatever it is that they need for an adventure without going too far. I
0: think you did that with, you know, still leaving a lot of available options, a very nice framework without having to, uh, like you said, flesh everything out. So thanks. Yeah, I think you did that quite well. So there are a couple of mechanics and any that I'm missing, please bring up. But the the dread mechanics and glory points. Can we go over that real quick?
1: Yeah. And just in case you want to make it more of an us versus them kind of thing, the idea of dread and glory was that there are these extra points where you could make it harder or easier for the creatures or the PCs at various times to ramp up the difficulty. And I honestly have to say that I don't use it a lot. I have used it during gameplay at various cons. Not that I have in the last year, because like most everybody else, we're all locked down. But the, the idea of dread appeals in that it kind of gives a little bit of a, a way to ratchet things up if things are getting too easy. And I don't use it a lot. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of allowing that little bit of competition to kind of creep in where there's this ever-changing pool of points that both the GM and the PCs could use to either level the playing field or, or make it much worse. So it kind of goes up and down based on how many critical successes or critical failures are, are rolled on each side. And so we use an, an initiative order in the game that is pretty much whatever the referee wants to go with. I usually go with the PCs go first and then the enemies go first. But using dread points you could actually have it so that you could hop a turn so that the Maybe the enemies go back-to-back, so they have two turns sequentially, which would really mess with a group of PCs. Or they have the ability to gain an extra move action or an extra attack. We haven't developed the team traits very much, but the idea that you could use the tactics traits, which you could give away one of your actions to give an ally an extra move or attack, so you can kind of help out there. Or spotter, which, you know, assists targeting enemies at a distance so if you have a spotter character working with a sniper the spotter could give instant advantage to the sniper and then the sniper does additional damage so we have some of that stuff built in the glory and dread kind of enhances that a bit by allowing that to ebb and flow a little bit more than in normal play
0: okay but it's not a necessary mechanic it's optional for
1: definitely optional yeah
0: Absolutely. Okay, so you did mention a little bit before about playtesting. You mentioned a couple of stories about playtesting already, but how did you choose to go about playtesting the game again?
1: I did not have a lot of experience with playtesting before I started testing aliens and asteroids. I think with the Mobius Adventures core rules book, I only had one or two playtests and got such negative uh, (laughs) feedback, which is fair. It was a very crunchy system and nobody liked crunchy at that point, that it really turned me off of all game design for a while. But with the Aliens and Asteroids stuff, it was play tested here. One of my daughters, my youngest daughter, helped out a lot. Uh, We played a lot of skirmishes where she beat the snot out of me, playing a bunch of gray aliens for a while until we kind of finalized things. And then I decided to reach out to my favorite local game store and see if I could get a table there and just open up playtesting. And we ended up with a core of four people that pretty regularly tested. And we tested for over a year. But we had a great time. The first few sessions were a little rough because we were still kind of fine-tuning. But as we worked our way through, I think we added one of the extra attributes was added during the first couple of sessions because we didn't have a good way of doing something. So we, on the fly, decided to add it. But really, my playtesters were a huge part of the initial push for the game. We had some fantastic sessions. I tried to keep very short sessions. I figure if I can occupy people for two hours it's about the same as a movie. And if I can keep people that long, then we're doing good. So we had a weekly two-hour session at the game store. Sometimes it went longer. Sometimes we went to three, three and a half hours. And the game store owner was very good about letting us have whatever space and time we needed. So we really expanded a lot on some of the initial ideas that I had. And I would kind of develop the story as we went along. We had some fantastic role-playing around... I mentioned the fish that had been transformed by the Dread. Think of them as... They're like space lampreys, and these things are on a swamp planet, and they were in this cave and they lowered somebody down into the cave, because it was a top-down entrance, and this poor NPC got basically treated like bait, and this fish chomped on to this this PC all the way up to her legs, and held on so everybody was pulling her out and eventually, because of the morale loss, because when you have a panic attack, or you freeze, or whatever, there's a chance you're going to lose a point of morale, and that makes everything worse from that point on, when you lose that attribute point. We had a couple of people lose morale to the point where they required some work after the fact to rebuild it. So we actually had the players decided that they were going to hold a party to celebrate the recovery of this person who survived being half-eaten by a fish. And one of the players had their character make a cake in the shape of a knife. And the knife had lettering on it that said, I'm sorry I stabbed you. Because there were two of them That critically failed and stabbed through the fish into the poor lady's legs uh, from 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 either side, and then it. Then I revealed that she didn't remember any of that. So they wiped away the lettering on the cake. (laughs) Very anyway. So they recovered morale by kind of doing these group activities to kind of work through the issues. And that moment will always just echo in my head as one of those great role playing things that you had not anticipated and yet happens, and you're like. Oh, that just makes me so happy. And one of those early playtesters has gone on to GM a couple of sessions of aliens and asteroids that I've had the luck in playing in and. We've had a blast, so it really made a huge difference to have the right people at the right time playtesting this game, and I am so grateful that they were able to help me out. And we're still playing with most of them today, so that's a, a fantastic side effect of playtesting and and coming up with a system that everybody seems to like. So yeah, that helps.
0: So out of curiosity, were those people that you knew before you started playtesting, or nope. did you become friends <laughs> through role playing?
1: We became friends through role playing. I basically. sat in the corner of the game room at uh, the local game store and had no idea who was going to show up. So we had a guy come the first night and then there were two people the the second night. The third night we had the guy and his girlfriend and it just grew from there. So we kind of ended up with this cobbled together group of four people who the first two really liked the game so they invited other people and then we've just continued to go from there. Like I said it, it was really luck and I'm really thankful that I lucked into that particular group of folks. Okay.
0: And are there any other major changes that you wanted to highlight that took place during the play testing? It sounds like you started with six attributes and you just, you decided, you know what, this doesn't fit every scenario. We need to add a seventh, right?
1: Yep. That was it. That was pretty much the biggest one that we did. We have added a, a lot of traits over the course of the last couple of years, but really it's just, you know, adding specific traits for whatever. I don't think that any of them are really significant additions. I really hope that we kind of play up the team dynamic in the next edition and that's one of the things i've been kind of talking with alan about over the last couple of years but other than that the core system was pretty much ready to go the first time we sat down and we've just had fun ever since i mean two hour sessions once a week and we started play testing in august of 2017 we launched the kickstarter in october and had it funded in november and we released the game the next february so really it all came together really quickly after we had that initial setup. So we got lucky. It was, it's was it been fun.
0: And is there anything in particular in Aliens and Asteroids that you're most proud of or anything specific that worked out very well or exceed your expectations?
1: Just the system itself. I honestly was hesitant to go with a Rules Light system although I'd been playing with Rules Light off and on before this came about. The idea that going with just a simple roll under attribute system really changed everything and it was one of those things that just flowed from that day forward. And I like the system. The system has done yeoman's duty and it has amazingly stood up to everything we have thrown at it so far, including some of the latest playtesting stuff that we're doing. It's one of those systems that the more I play with, the more I love. And it's easy And it's very flexible and it doesn't get in the way. And that's one of the things that I absolutely adore about it. I really like the fact that we can focus on story without getting bogged down by a whole lot of minutiae and that's made my life so much easier. I've run more games in the last three years than I I think I'd run the the previous 10. So take that as a win. It's a simple system that people can jump in and they don't have to learn a lot. You know, you roll a couple of dice and you move on and you focus on the story and role-playing. The system gets out of the way and that's the best kind of system as far as I'm concerned. So I'm happy to say that I am a big fan of the system that we wrote. So I guess that's a good thing.
0: Absolutely. So did you want to elaborate on any future plans that you have for this system and for aliens and asteroids in general? I know that you said that you and Alan were working on a second edition, I believe.
1: Yeah, we've got a second edition that we're, we're thinking about. This summer, we're going to uh, do our next Kickstarter. It'll be a game called Digital Dark. And Digital Dark kind of takes us into the cyberpunk, cyberspace kind of side of Aliens and Asteroids with artificial intelligences and virtual worlds kind of brings in Tron and Ready Player One and a little bit of Cyberpunk in. So I'm excited for it. It's going to open up Aliens and Asteroids even further than we had before. And we just released in the middle of last summer Tattered Magics, which is our urban fantasy. So we kind of are splitting the difference and kind of going genre to genre and having fun as we go. So we're having a good time. So
0: Digital Dark is actually part of Aliens and Asteroids. Is it in a shared universe?
1: I look at it as Digital Dark sort of takes place in the digital realm that exists in Aliens and Asteroids. So you have the idea that you could enter a virtual world sort of like Ready Player One and play in these other universes. During our playtest, we've playtested in an Antarctic Victorian era adventure. We've had a Jack the Ripper kind of adventure. We had a haunted house kind of adventure and we're about to go into an ancient Egypt mummy style adventure. But it allows you to kind of play Play a little bit with tropes and genres and different rule systems. So there's that level of it. And then there's the level behind it. So we talked a little bit about the Neogen before. The Neogen are the androids that are trying to basically stay alive when they're being hunted down as bugs in the system. Well, there's also artificial intelligences in the digital dark that are trying to remain alive as well. And that kind of brings in the master control program idea of Tron, where behind the scenes in this sort of Westworld sort of environment there are other things going on that the PCs may or may not know about so you could actually roleplay entirely in a digital world playing in digital dark without Aliens and Asteroids as sort of like Neo and the rest of the crew from the Matrix where you're all avatars inside a simulation and I look forward to exploiting a bunch of that we have some ideas to, to really play with but it works in conjunction with Aliens and Asteroids but it'll stand alone as well. So it'll also work with Tattered Magic. So you can actually play Aliens and Asteroids where you go into a virtual world and you play in sort of a fantasy Dungeons and Dragons almost adventure or supernatural or whatever. So we're we're just trying to open up as many doors as we can to allow people to play whatever stories they want. And the Inverse 20 system so far has allowed us to do that easily and quickly. So like I said, I'm really happy that we built the system the way that we did. And so far, it's done everything we've thrown at it. I, and I'm
0: excited to hear that, too. Yeah, the uh, Digital Dark and Tattered Magics. Yeah, I'm very interested in, in both of those games. So you said it was a Kickstarter for Digital Dark that's going up sometime this summer?
1: Sometime this summer, yes. It'll probably be maybe mid or late June before we have anything to show for it. But the game is in the works right now. It's mostly written, and we're just kind of fine-tuning a few things and making sure that we have all of our ducks in a row.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So where would you direct listeners to get a copy of Aliens and Asteroids.
1: So, Aliens and Asteroids, you can get at Drive-Thru RPG, or you can get at Amazon, courtesy of our distributors. If you want to learn more about Mobius Adventures and Aliens and Asteroids or any of our other stuff, we encourage you to drop by our website, which has links to buy these various products. So, MobiusAdventures.com, M-O-E-B-I-U-S, Adventures.com. Uh, will get you to wherever you need to go, including our social media links to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, uh, as well as our live play podcasts that we're doing. So there's a lot of good stuff up there.
0: Sounds like, and we'll be sure to have some links in our show notes to those resources so our listeners can check out everything you're doing at Mobius Adventures and keep an eye out for Digital Dark to help get it funded.
1: Sounds awesome. We appreciate the help.
0: Absolutely. Well, Fitz, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for stopping by the show.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, it has been a fun ramble.
0: Thank you again, Fitz, for stopping by the Guild Hall to share with us the alien horrors and astronomical adventures awaiting those who choose to enlist. In the Dominion's Space Marine Corps. Aliens and Asteroids provides role players with a simple yet expansive D 20 system, which gives your regiment easy access to the stars. So we believe that all listeners should stop by the Mobius Adventures website or Drive Through RPG to obtain a copy so you too can help defend our solar system from dreadful extraterrestrial threats. Before we go, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was provided by Infraction. Logo design for our show was done by Elishanist. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Hodag RPG, The Black Veil, Nola Burt, and Rico Las Weishaupt for their help. completing this episode and as always thank you to all listeners your continued support across a variety of platforms is the fuel in this show's engines a five-star rating and a few positive words about ddg pod on apple podcasts does more to keep the show going than you would think so please make a note to give a rating and review next chance you get and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts that concludes our sixth episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you starship troopers and wayward excusori? we escaped again. But remember, next time we might not be so lucky.